Up next, our Alan Shard talking a 2010 Encore conversation with the late Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Sidney Shanberg and actor Sam Waterston, who played him in The Killing Fields, the movie inspired by Shanberg's coverage of the Civil War in Cambodia during the 1970s. It's next. Hi, this is Alan Shartok. What an exciting program we have today. Joining us are Sidney Shanberg and Sam Waterston. Shanberg won the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting. His groundbreaking journalism in Cambodia was the basis for the film The Killing Fields. Shanberg spent more than 25 years with the New York Times. He's also worked as an editor and columnist at New York Newsday. His writing has appeared in The Nation, The Village Voice, Penthouse, and various other outlets. His new book is Beyond the Killing Fields, War Writings Published by Potomac Books. Our second guest today is an old friend of WAMC, Sam Waterston, who was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar for portraying Shanberg in The Killing Fields in 1984. A longtime stage and screen star, Waterston won a Screen Actors Guild Award in 1999 for his iconic work as Jack McCoy on Law & Order. He was also nominated for Tony for Best Actor in 1994 for his portrayal of Abraham Lincoln, I think he's the best actor in the whole world. That's personal. <laughs> Waterston has appeared in more than a dozen Broadway roles and countless movies and television shows. Sam Waterston and Sidney Shanberg, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Our pleasure. So what I want to know is it's a great book. I sat there, Sid, and, you know, I'm a 69-year-old guy. Maybe I'm losing it, but I, I couldn't help but cry as I read so much of what you had written about your dear friend, Sam, I have a question for you. I'm going to start it out because we're going to be talking to Sid a lot. But I wanted to ask you, has your portrayal in a movie, this movie, changed your life in any way? This movie did. As a direct consequence of being in this movie, I joined a refugees organization called Refugees International. and I've been on the board for 25 years. It, it was not just based on the experience of doing this movie, but it was as a direct result of publicizing this movie that I met the people who founded the organization and they said to me, now that you know what's going on, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I I kind of thought I'd be an actor and go on about my life. And they said, no. So it was life-changing in that way in terms of what I've done with my life since, but it's also was life-changing as an experience per se. Working with Hank Knorr, who has since died, was an unforgettable experience meeting Dith Pran and, and meeting Sydney and the kind of infusion of importance that Pran tried to uh, inject into me by beating on my chest. Um, for, right from that start, before we even went out uh, east, uh, and the whole experience of shooting it was absolutely unforgettable. And I think it's true, not just for me, but for everybody who worked on the film. Yeah. Are you at all like Sid Schamberg? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I I, th- I think so. Do you? I don't think he wa- was uh, um, aware of it before, but that streak was in him somehow because when I began seeing him on television and watching him religiously on Law and Order, I thought he took that from me. <laughs> he's ticked off of all, of- and he as he's ticked off, and he's saying so. And the hell with everybody else. He's going to go on his way. 
the way he feels about this issue and so forth and so on. And and all I can say is that's made him a wealthier man than it has made me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be true that that's part of the reason why they cast me was because of long, because of the killing fields. What makes you really think that, Sam? What do you mean? What makes you really think that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you said it could be. Is there any evidence that Dick Wolf saw the film and said, "I want Sam"? Well, he's never said so in so many words. But McCoy was definitely reconceived as an aggressive, uh, forward-leaning, outspoken. Right. Sidney Shanberg kind of and, uh, guy. He and his father, they're all alike with their Irish temper. They lose control, and the next oh, thing you so know, you have a murder. Harrigan did it because he's a mick? Detective Logan is a mick. I'm a mick, sir. And if you don't shut up, I'll lose control and throw you out of the room. Yeah. <laughs> but, Sam, you go to church every Sunday, I hear, and Sid, you know, is Jewish. So when I asked the question, are you guys like each other at all, I didn't particularly mean in any other way except that... You know, you're tall, he's shorter. You're a different kind of guy in real life. So that's why I asked that question. Well, I don't get that <laughs> at all. You know, I'll tell you a story that, that when, when Pran and I were approached by producers and so forth, the first person who approached us was the one that finally did the movie. And in any case, I won't go through the process, but the... That first person was David Putnam, and the uh, director was suddenly, I'm losing. Roland Joffe. Yeah, Roland Joffe, and who had worked in Shakespeare and other things in London. And um, when they asked Pran and myself what we wanted this movie to be, what we wanted to come out to, to what would be the, the, the aura of this movie, I said, well, it, you know, it won't work if you want to make it into a Hollywood, you know, the Lone Ranger and Tonto riding across the range bringing justice. I said, because I'm no hero in this. They, you know, that's just not the theme at all. So we asked that they portray us in just as they perceived us. Uh, I mean, and as real people. And so when they had the first cut they came to New York with it and showed it. And one of my first reactions when Sam was charging ahead or something, yelling at a press conference or yelling at somebody, I said, be careful what you wish for. Because, you know, there you've got it, you know, the, the fig, his figure is, what, 16 foot tall on the screen. and uh, and Exactly. And he's charging and, you know, not taking no for an answer and getting the story and all that sort of thing. And I, I thought... Uh, wow, you know, and that so it's not always easy to look at yourself. And the point was, my point at the end is that Sam did portray me. All right, you can get started on this. Tell him to uh, start sending this out, but hold on to the last two paragraphs. I'll be over with corrections in an hour. The transmitter is in me. The transmitter at Gambor got hit. This is 6 p.m. We can find 6 p.m. What do you think this is that we're working for? A monthly magazine? This is a newspaper. How about update tomorrow? Yeah, we can file an update tomorrow. I was over at the American Embassy yesterday. Good news? No, not good news. They say that when this place goes up, they think that a lot of people are going to get killed. A lot of people. All right, I've arranged for the evacuation of you and your family. 
So now it's up to you. What do you want to do? Do you want to stay or do you want to leave? And how about you? That's none of your business. And when I kid him about that was me and you took that piece from me, I believe it was there all the time. I don't think you can you can uh, fake anything like that. And oh, I shouldn't say fake it, but you know, figure it out as an actor and do it that well. And, I thought Pran wanted Burt Lancaster to play you. He never told me, but I guess <laughs> I guess I owe him a kick in the pants for that, right? Let's remind everybody. <laughs> let's remind everybody, Sam, who Pran was. Pran was uh, my brother, Sydney's brother, and his a fellow journalist and a Cambodian during the Cambodian War, and he was when everybody had to evacuate, he had to stay behind, and that's. The story of their relationship and the story of his survival uh, under the Khmer Rouge and eventual escape and reunification with Sid and his family, that's the story of the movie. Okay, so Shamberg just told a lie, <laughs> and I want your reaction to it. Kel lie. Yeah. He's, which one? He, which, which one? Yes, I know a little French. Ah, so, so, <laughs> <laughs> so he said. So he said he's not a man of courage. That's what. When that's did what, he say that? He said it. Of, did he, 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 didn't that want, he didn't want to be portrayed as this man of courage, just as a human being. But I think no. It was that was it? Wasn't the fact that he was a man of courage? It was that he was obviously, you know, making a big show of himself. And I never, you don't see yourself when you're doing those things. The fact yeah, is, it was accurate. But, but, I knew I had done them, but I didn't. I'd never seen them on a you know a movie screen before. Damn it, Sid! You stayed there when no one else would have stayed there. You you put yourself in incredible danger. You had a loyalty to a friend that you were going to go back and you were going to spend your life making sure that that guy got out of there. I sat there and I read your new book, Beyond the Killing Fields, by Sidney Shanberg, and I bawled. I mean, I was I just couldn't stop myself. I said, "You're a grown man." Alan, stop this stuff. But there it was. How can you say, how can anybody say they weren't a man of courage when in the worst time, in the worst genocide since Hitler, you sat there and subjected yourself to that? Well, I was still scared. I mean, I mean the fact is that both of us were scared, but we kept pretending that we weren't in any immediate harm. And we weren't in immediate harm until the moment when we were. And that was the day when we saw you know, pluperfect courage because they, the Khmer Rouge took us, four were four of us. A photographer was... John Swain? Yeah, no, yeah, John Swain. No, John Swain. And Rockoff. Alan Rockoff was played... John Malkovich. Right, and, the, and Swain was played by... I'm going to forget that one, too. He was a, a, a young, handsome British actor. Yeah. Anyway... When we were captured coming out of a hospital, that was the day that the, that the Khmer Rouge took the city. And we hadn't really seen them close up yet. We went to the hospital because we did that on a regular basis. And the doctors hadn't showed up. There were only a few nurses. People were, had entered the hospital wounded and, and died right on the marble floors, the stone floors. And blood was dripping down, and it was it was it was a charnel house. So once we got, we couldn't take all that. You know, you can't stand there very long not doing anything, can you? So we walked out, and we got captured, in, in by a bunch of guys that had that had captured a, a person, an armored personnel carrier, 
and they threw us inside. And as they were doing that, holding guns to our heads, Prawn was at the front of this machine yelling or pleading with a soldier. You thought they were going to kill you, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. And not just then, but, you know, on our ride to the, to the, to the riverfront. When, but in any case, Prawn was chattering at them and saying this and that and this and that. And we had no idea what he was doing. I said to him, come on, Prawn, for Christ's sake, don't, they'll, they'll, they'll shoot you or something you know, like that. And I said, get in. And because he was arguing with them. And what was he arguing about? Well, I learned a few minutes later when we were all inside that what he was arguing with them was saying was he was telling them that they told him to go away. We don't, we're not looking for you. We're looking for the tom-toms, the big people. And they thought we were Americans. And he kept saying to them that we weren't. But in any case, he said no. And I said, why in the world didn't you take off? And he said, I mean, this was years later or time later. I don't even know when I asked him. But when I did ask him, he said, I knew that none of you could get out of this without me. And he's right. Because when he got into this, this armored personnel carrier, which was filled with sandbags and so forth and so on, and, and, and where it, it's hot and we're, and we're looking at each other across this thing, and Rockoff looks, he's, he's turning white, pale, and he had a big tan at that time. And so I figured I must look the same way. And I reached into a pocket, my, one of my pockets, and pulled out a gift that one of my daughters had given me just a few weeks before because I knew I was wanting to stay. And then I met them and uh, met the family in Bangkok. I had a few days together before I came back into Cambodia. And I knew the end was coming anyway. And this was a silk flower. And it was a silk rose. I still have it. And it was now, you know, all sweaty and whatever from being in my pocket all these days. And and I said, look, nothing can happen to us, guys. I've got Jessica's magic flower. You know, I'm pretty insane, right? Anyway, and also I remember that when they opened, we reached the waterfront, the riverfront, and they opened the, that back hatch on the uh, armored personnel carrier. I looked out. It was all very quick, fractions of seconds, and there were two men with AK-47s on their hip, and I thought we were, they were just going to shoot us as we walked out and roll us into the river, which was a common way of doing battle in that time. And somehow, what went through my head was, I am not going to get on my knees and beg. I'm not going to lose my humanity. They're going to kill me, they're going to kill me.
Now, talk about stupid thoughts. You know, I mean, after all, if you thought you had a chance, you should get on your knees and beg. Well, anyway, in the end, uh, we didn't have the option. They weren't told to fire right away. And, but there they stood, and we stood there. With our but, but at that moment, Sid Schamberg, uh, you owed your life to your compatriot. Well, we owed it to him all the way through, yeah. And then, no, I mean, I don't think you've ever heard the full story, and I'm going to write about it someday. He bluffed them. He told them we were Canadians, and that wasn't true. He had been running up to these people who looked like officers because they had pens in their pocket. They weren't wearing any rank marks or anything else. And he just kept running up to them and saying, they're not Americans and so forth and so on. They'd gone through our bags that we were carrying. My, my passport was right on top. They didn't speak English. So they didn't know it was a U.S. passport. And they were sometimes laughing at him and making you know fun of him and get away. We're having our lunch. And finally, he said to them, he told us this later, that he said, when we, this morning, when you took the city, you took the radio, the government radio, took it over. And on the radio, your general said that the press would be allowed to cover your victory and there would be no difficulties with that and so forth and so on. Well, nothing of the sort occurred. I heard those radio announcements and there was, nothing, there was, there was no you know, free passage for the press or anything in them. And so they said, well, we didn't know that. And, and he said, well, let me go to the headquarters that you've set up at the information ministry and, I, and let me go with an officer and I'll, we'll find out from them and they'll confirm it. And somehow, Pran got to the information ministry and was put before a higher ranking uh, officer and went through this whole thing. And he said, you're not, he didn't say anything about you went over to the radio. He said, you know, these are reporters. They're here to cover your victory. What's the matter with you? Why, do, why, do you, why are you trying to harm them or shoot them or whatever? And then he said something about the radio, but they didn't know either because they hadn't heard it. And then he came back. And what had happened was these senior officers had said to him, simply made him, made him some kind. Maybe they were better educated, whatever. They didn't want this, whatever, bad press or bad mark on them and get out that they killed reporters. And so they said, no, we won't go kill reporters and you are to be freed. And the guy came back, the, the officer with uh, Pran, and said, yeah, we are to release them. Now, Sam, when you're preparing for a film like this, to what degree do you have to psych in on who Sid is, what he was feeling at the time, in your preparation? Well, of course, he'd already written a lot. And the story of his relationship with Pran, which was the basis for the film, had already been sure. published in the Sunday Times. And I'd read it just serendipitously years before the movie was made. And then there was everything that he had written for the paper, some of which is in this book. Um, but the main thing is that the two of them were unbelievably generous with themselves. How did that work? Did you meet with them? Yeah, yeah. And particularly Pran, I have to say, in spite of Sidney being here, Pran was obsessed with Sidney being fairly portrayed. And he really did plant his fist on my chest and hit me hard right here several times uh, to impress upon me that what Sidney had in him, that, it, that, that he was a substantial person with a big heart. And he really wanted me to, 
it was like he was trying to uh, implant it. Is what it felt like at the time. Amazing. And and then how do you how do you translate that? I mean, how do you study that uh, as an actor? Well, I, you hope it sticks. Um, it's just got to be kind of a, uh, you know, this is uh, this would be a, a miraculous transferal if it happened. But you just have to hope that it worked. It certainly helped me believe. And belief is 75, 85, maybe 95 percent of the game in acting. So, so it was a big help. And then Sydney's from Massachusetts. I'm from Massachusetts. Uh, there's some crossover. Yeah. Do you remember those meetings, Sid? Yeah. I never, by the way, I never, I never heard the story before about what, how Pran beat him on the chest. Beat, him on, beat, beat Sam on the chest to say how, what a great guy I was. But, you know, Pran died uh, two years ago now of pancreatic cancer. And uh, he, he left this coil. I still think I speak. I think of him in the present tense. He left this coil in the same, you know, graceful way. You know, some people said people, some people die well. Well, he did more than die well. And... I remember talking to him at his bedside over the final weeks, and I tried to make light because we'd never had a serious conversation yet about what he expected when he died, except that he was a Theravada Buddhist, and therefore he believed in the afterlife. And uh, so I said something like, uh, how are we going to communicate when you're not here? And he looked at me, and then he took it seriously. It was half said half lightly. And then he leaned back on bed, and he, start, he pondered. And it took it was 20 or 30 seconds, which is a long time sometimes. When you, and he, he looked up, and he said, he sat up. He said, I'll send you my dreams. And I stuttered. I said, well, then I'll send you mine. And uh, I believe someday that's going to happen. But I think it really has already happened. Pran is in me, and, and I'll never forget, you know, and no, never forget him. It, you know, he's, Pran was short. A lot of Cambodians are not tall. And they, they, he, was, he was thin. And you, if you looked at him, you'd never understand just what a leader he was. Everybody knew, every reporter in Phnom Penh knew that he was the best guide and assistant. And I had come into Cambodia accidentally as a utility infielder because uh, of in 1970 when the coup against threw Sihanouk out and put General Law Nol in and so forth. And then America came in and spread the war into Cambodia, the Nixon incursion and so forth. Well, I didn't meet him then. I met him on my second visit in 72. Again, you know, just coming in as a visitor to help out the bureau and this and that, the Saigon Bureau. Uh, and we met. And I, we just, we, we really knew we were on the same page. So, Sid Schamberg, when you did all that work and all that worrying and taking care of his family while they were in the States and being in touch with them all the time and being an intervener and worrying about him and looking for every piece of news of him that you could find because he'd been left there. Anyone who knows my work will know that half of this belongs to Dith Pran. 
Without Pran, I wouldn't have been able to file half the stories that I did. It's nice to congratulate ourselves on occasions like this, but I can't stand here tonight without thinking of those innocent people Pran dedicated himself to helping me bring to the notice of the American public. As they pondered their options in the White House, the men who decided to bomb and then to invade Cambodia concerned themselves with many things. Great power conflicts and collapsing dominoes, looking tough and dangerous to the North Vietnamese, relieving pressure on the American troop withdrawal from the South. They had domestic concerns as well, which helps explain why they kept the bombing of Cambodia a secret for as long as they could. And they may be assumed not to have ignored self-interest in their own careers. What they specifically were not concerned with were the Cambodians themselves, not the people, not the society, not the country, except in the abstract as instruments of policy. Dith Pran and I tried to record and bring home here the concrete consequences of these decisions to real people. You do this masterful writing, and Sam knows all about it, of how, you know, he survived there, what he did. He ate ants, red ants, uh, mm -hmm. and, and all the rest. And rats. And rats. And there comes that moment when you meet him again. Well... That's portrayed accurately in the I film. I want to know about it. I want to know about it now. I want to know about it now. Well, I want you to tell us. Well, you know, I was kind of crazed when the news came. I knew he was alive because a, a Soviet, uh, a Russian reporter who was working in Paris at the time, uh, no U.S., almost no U.S. American reporters were allowed in during the Khmerish thing. There was one group that went in and actually interviewed the leader. Paul Pot, but but Eastern European, you know, communist reporters were allowed in, and this man had been allowed in in a group, and he came back with a picture of Pran and a message, and he called me on the phone from Paris, and he had no idea really who I was or who Pran was, but he was doing. A neighborly thing. He was doing what Prime asked him to do. Prime had pulled him aside, said, yes. come over here. Right. He talked to me and he talked in French and in well, tones. Yes. Prime watched him talking to others and he had, was, he had to make a decision as to whether this man was, was safe to talk to him. What if he reported Prime? Uh, that I was trying to get a message to the U.S. That wouldn't have gone over well. These, the Vietnamese were now in charge, but that wouldn't have gone over well. And he finally decided he had to do it because the guy looked like he was okay. And then Pran went up and talked to him. And um, when I got that message, Jesus, I mean, I was tell there. us Tell us about the moment you got it. Well, I, I started to cry. And I was shaving. And, you know, the tears are coming down. The shaving cream is falling off. And I immediately, I thanked him. He had no idea why I was, why I had exploded into, into joy on the phone and it sounded so wacky. And I said, you know, I mean, I told him he'd done God's work. And, and finally, I called just after that, called the family. And the, older, the oldest son got the call. 
And he just screamed like any an American kid you ever heard. And he said, he was just yelled to the others. His mother wasn't in the house at the time. She was out working. All right, I want you to get this down. No, write it down. Write it down. I've got a message from your dad. I remember what he screamed? Father's alive or something like well, that. Well, no, yes, but he also, yeah. he also used some Americanism. Like Slang, a, yeah. About like, like a, at a sports event. Yeah. And I can't think of what that was, but mm-hmm. it is in the quote. I don't know why I can't remember that. But anyway, so I knew he was alive. He, but he was alive inside Cambodia. Yeah, and I said, the, how long had this gone on for that you were looking for him? Four and a half years. Wow. And then there were suddenly uh, Vietnam was allowing this, the Vietnam occupation group was allowing charitable groups to come in and do work, relief work there. And so I knew people at the UN and I said, who were going? And I said, here's, here's what I've got. I said, I've got this friend that I have to talk to. And you're going to be in Phnom Penh, but maybe you can get up to the Siem Rip area and somewhere has someone can, you know, you can get information to him or whatever that tells him, I know he's there and we're going to get him out. And they, they said they confirmed, they told me they confirmed he was there, but they never got up to do any arrangements in any way. And in the meantime, he was plotting with friends he feared that the Vietnamese, he had been the mayor of this little city. He, they allowed a vote and they wanted someone whom people would, who liked, they liked them and they, you know, they wouldn't have any trouble with the local population. So because they, he was Cambodian. Yeah, well, there was the Cambodians voting for yeah, who they, sure. yeah. And so the, the, uh, they thought he'd, you know, that they'd have an easier time governing. And, and they did, but Pran was also a pusher and he said he needed, he would go up and he needed more, he needed more food for the people, ration, rationed food and so forth. And he would pester them for better conditions. And finally, he said that they, he, they began to become suspicious of him, or he felt so. And he felt it was time he had to go. And he didn't tell his family. His mother was still alive because, he, you know, he didn't want to put them at risk. If they knew, they might tell somebody. And he left with a few friends for the border. And it took several days it was only you know only about 20 miles but it, it could only there were patrols or all kinds of things so it took him a long time he got to the border and that and the thai soldiers are at the border and they're saying unless you have a, a visa or you know a passport we can't let you in and so forth and he kept begging and pushing and finally after several days they let him in and he got into a camp uh refugee camp that was being run by religious sect from the united states based in nyack and he got them to call Henry Cam, who is our Bangkok guy and has also written a book about Cambodia, a very, very, very super reporter. And Cam called me and said he's out. And that is when T. Tony, when I told him he's out, it went into this sports scream. I forget what it was. That's the son. That's the son. Yeah. And T. Tony screaming at his... Uh, his uh, siblings, he says, dad is out, dad is safe. Okay, before we go on, and I want you to hold that thought, Sid, I want to go back to Sam and ask him this. He's described some of these great moments, including the moment he heard, the moment he held him in his arms for the first time and they jumped together. We're going to hear about that in a moment. When you're experiencing this as an actor, are you experiencing any of what he was feeling at the time, personally feeling? Well, uh, in my imagination, for sure. And we were 
we were surrounded by the reality. We were shooting in Thailand, but we were surrounded by Cambodians who had experienced what we were portraying. So that, for instance, when we when we came on the set, which was built in the suburbs of Bangkok, of the main street of Phnom Penh on the day that the Khmer Rouge came in, uh, members of our company walked, so to speak, off the streets of Bangkok and onto the main street of Phnom Penh and burst into tears. So the, really? so the event was terribly present for all of the Cambodians, and it meant everything to them. And that was terribly infectious. And then Hang Noor's experience paralleled Pran's. And they used to have competitions about what, when they were doing interviews on television yeah, to promote the movie. Pran. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. And uh, they would have these competitions about who had eaten the most disgusting thing when they were living under the Khmer Rouge. <laughs> I eat snake, I eat rat, I eat dog, I eat cockroach, I eat... Yeah. You know, and they just went on and on. Yeah, I suffered more than you. Um, <laughs> That's what it was. But they, so there was a, there was a similarity of experience, and I'm not going to say that there was a, a sameness of spirit because I, I have no way of knowing. But we felt like we were as close to being in a real place as you can and still be in a movie. So how did they cast Fron? I mean, did he have an acting experience, Hangnor? I think Hang Noor had been in one play when he was in high school. But he had this readiness of emotion that won him an Academy Award. The winner is... Hang S. Noor in the killing field. This unbelievable. But so is my entire life. I wish to thank all members of... Motion Picture Academy for this great honor. I thank Louis Panam, Ron Chofi, for giving me this chance to act for the first time in the killing fields. And I share this award to my friend Sam Rostone, Lid Brown, Sridh Schumer, and also Pat Gordon, director casting lady, who found me for this role. <laughs> and I thank... And I thank Warner Brothers for helping me tell my story to the world, let the world know what happened in my country. And I thank God, Buddha, that tonight, I'm even here. Thank you, man. Thank you. And the story could not have been more important to him. You know, there's this sort of chain of connection here between the thing that drove Pran to work so hard for Sydney was that it was essential to him that the Cambodian story be told. And then it was essential to hang that in the movie, the same story, get out. And so he, was, he had his whole life in it. And at the moment that he left the embassy, when all the Westerners were being sent home, 
and he had to go out on his own. All Roland Jaffe said to him before the scene began was, all right, Hang, I want you to just think of all the sad things. Hmm. And then... Uh, and then he, the two of us were on the floor. He was packing up a little handkerchief full of stuff, and he was tying the knot, and Roland said, action, and he looked up, and his face was the mask of tragedy. Goodbye. For Christ's sake, Sidney, why didn't you get him out when you had the chance? You had no right to keep him here. Morgan, a funny sense of priorities. I'm reporter too, Morgan. I know his heart. I love him like my brother. Sure. And I do anything for him. Anything. Goodbye. And he said goodbye to everybody going on the wall, on this row of friends, and uh, spontaneously each and every one of them burst into tears. It, he trans. So he was doing successfully what he wanted to do, which was to transfer the reality of the story onto the screen. As an actor watching another actor, what did it feel like to you to watch that? Well, <laughs> apart from jealous, <laughs> um, no, it was it 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 was as I was saying in the beginning. It brought us into the reality of the situation. Sid, if you would pick up the story, because we are not yet there in terms of the reunion. Well, there was a lot of crossover. All that, all that sparring as to, you know, it was it was a very lower level, low level of of uh, competition. You know, because Pran imagined, I suppose, I never spoke to him about it. Probably, Pran probably imagined I could do a better job than that. You know, acting and so forth. Oh, I mean, the, the, the actor. Was well, I think is, he was in part jealous of, but it never stopped him. He was still the central guy. I mean, he was the one who kept you know, bringing Cambodia's story to America and the world. Were you guys permitted on the set during the filming? During well, the they, allowed, they, they said we could come and they would pay the airfare, etc. But I decided that I, this was their time, their art. And uh, I had pumped everything I had into him. I mean, I, I was interviewed and interviewed and interviewed by everybody, by Roland Joffe, by the set designer who did a remarkable job. Mm. The cinematographer was Chris Menges, and he made his own films after that, and uh, he's a Welsh guy, and he's a wonderful guy, and he won, a, he won an Oscar for it. I can tell you, you know, the people came out of that movie, the first showings, and people who were in Cambodia, reporters, and said, I thought it was Phnom Penh. And I had to search and search on the screen to find something different, and he said... The telephone lines were too high. <laughs> and that's the only—they looked at photos. I mean, they, they built these sets. It was remarkable. In any case, when the film came to New York for its premiere, there was a gathering of the crew of the movie. And, you know, people I had not met. And, you know, everybody was there. And they all would come up and— want to talk about it. They, it, was, it was in their gut. They wanted that movie to succeed so badly. They wanted something positive to come out of it. I do want to ask you this as long as you've raised it, and that is often uh, the writer 
will say, ah, you know, they took my book and they screwed it all up. <laughs> You know, and I, I can't stand it. You know, you talk to Arlo about what happened in the film and Alice's Restaurant and all the rest. No. But you don't feel that. I don't feel it, and the writer didn't feel it. You know, he and the writer was a pretty a guy who would speak his mind, Bruce Robinson. I mean, he – and no, no. In any case, uh, everybody I, – I think their whole soul was in it. And, and they did it right. They did it right. And I'll tell you what, what else we had asked them for the movie, not, you know, to portray me accurately, I said. But we, we said the most important thing was that the Cambodians are not stick figures in this film because a lot of films about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, you know, the Vietnamese or whoever, were, mm. they were just looked like stick figures. No one was a developed character. This wasn't the case. They did I think it. that was the whole reason David wanted to make the movie of your story. Yeah. Was because he, he wanted to make a movie about the victims of war. That's right. And the, and, the, and the fact is he did it exactly as I asked him. And, was, and I was – and I'll tell you the, the, the follow to that. The follow to that was that we as Americans probably don't understand this immediately. But the fact is that they were in a shut-off country, a blacked-out country, four and a half years, all these Cambodians who survived – and they never knew whether their story, their suffering, was known to anybody outside. And this film did it. Now, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like now, at least I can die knowing that. And I had people say that to me. And, and uh, I mean, I could tell you stories that were told to me later about in those labor camps how people deliberately got themselves killed after learning from a BBC broadcast that some planes had bombed some Khmer Rouge sites in northern Cambodia. And when they heard that, they said, they know, they know. The outside world knows. And these particular people just walked up to Khmer Rouge officers and said something awful or hit them or something and were shot on the site. million and a half people died. At least, you know. Yeah. Sid, if you don't mind, I want to go back to, first of all, I want to remind everybody that we're talking to Sam Waterston and to Sidney Schamberg. Sidney Schamberg has a new book called Beyond the Killing Fields. That's what we're talking about now. And I read it, I loved it, and I order you all to go out and get it. Sam played, of course, the lead in The Killing Fields, and it was a masterful and wonderful performance. So, Sid, I want to go back to asking you the, the question about how you actually got together with Braun. Well, immediately upon learning that went from, get from Henry Cam's phone call, I became, you know, in a dither, but I knew what I had to do. My, first of all, I had my, my, my passport had to be renewed, so everybody on, in, you know, on the staff... They were running around talking to the, you know, to government officials, and we got that done right away. When you say the staff, the New York Times staff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was city editor, mm -hmm. and my staff, I had always had a, a couple of pictures of Prawn on my desk, and they knew all about Prawn, and they even helped edit or, you know, to when I wrote that piece. And everybody just did everything possible, and, and I got a plane. I got a plane ticket right away, and within hours, I was... Uh, gone. And I got there. Henry Cam uh, met me. He said, I'm going to take you to the embassy and so forth and so on. We're going to, it was a Sunday. And so the embassy wasn't really open, but he, got, he had gotten people to come into the office and the, and the UN people and all that sort of thing were there. And they said, well, we have a busload coming out of that camp on Wednesday. Maybe we can get his name added. 
This was Sunday. And I said, uh, well, you know, if you can't, I, I, won't, I won't stop. I mean, that's how, how really, you know, wild I was and crazy. To, I said, you know, all this. And I said, well, what do you do then? He said, I said, I'll stuff them in the trunk of the car. That's what I'll do. And I'll bring them down. He says, there are checkpoints. You could both be arrested and you, know, you don't know what Thai jails are like. And I, and I said, well, we'll take our chances. Pran knows all about that sort of stuff. And I just wasn't, I, you know, it couldn't stop me. So I just, just took off. And by the time I got there, of course, they had done it. They had got him on the list. And I got there and um, I had two drivers because I figured if one got tired, it was about a six-hour trip to the border. And uh, I had two drivers that could spell each other. And I, I myself went to the house of these missionaries who he had contacted and uh, had a dinner that night, and we couldn't go to the. We couldn't. It was nighttime. We couldn't go to the camp. And I went to the camp the next day, the next morning, and uh, early in the morning, I was up about five. I bought some things at a store for him, some clothes and things like that. And we went to the refugee camp and went in. And the missionary said, "Well, his area is over there. There were these long houses built." And I saw somebody, a young man who I thought might know some English, and I said, I'm looking for my friend Dith Pran. And he said, I know Dith Pran. And he ran off down this row of longhouses and said, screaming, Pran, Pran, your friend is here, your friend is here. It was like the town crier. And suddenly, you know, within, I don't know how many seconds, I don't know, it just seemed like longer than it probably was. Pran comes around the corner of the longhouses, hobbling, because his legs weren't very good. You know, bones were given out and all that sort of thing out of the suffering and the uh, lack of food. And then we start trotting toward each other. And, um, you know, it was, I was transfixed. And, and then he got, we got we, you know, we came together and he leaped immediately with his legs wrapped around me and said, oh, Sid, Sid, you came, you came. You forgive me? Nothing's bugging us, nothing. We were both crying, and and then, you know, just a few minutes later or less than a few minutes later, still in that position, and he's head on my shoulder and his legs wrapped around me, I said, can you forgive me? He says, nothing to forgive, I said, but I, you know, you were left behind. He said, that's not your fault. He said, I'm here now, and you have, there's nothing to forgive. And then we spent the rest of the day, we were holding hands and walking around this camp, and there was a, a clinic from the Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders there, and we went in, and they're great people. They're giving up their, they give up their time and practices sometimes to come and do things like that. And Anyway, and then Pran, there were some things that you know, you, you, you'd love to have put in the movie. Pran kept saying to me, you don't know what's going on beyond the, beyond the border inside Cambodia. We've got to write about that. There are this going on, and there are, there are, there are uh, these guys shooting at those guys. 
And he says, there are stories, Sydney, Sydney, Sydney. We have to do these stories. And that's the, another important thing to remember about Pran is that he, whatever he was when we first met, he had done a lot of work with Westerners. He worked on the film Lord Jim as a translator and so forth with Peter O'Toole. And he, he, he knew, we bonded because he knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell a story of what was happening to Cambodia. Not to what the embassy was doing or, you know, unless it related, but, I mean, just what's happening, how this country was, was suffering. And so that's exactly what he wanted. And he became, I, I, I can tell you this, he became a reporter who knew exactly how I wanted to function and exactly what I wanted for the stories. And we just morphed. In any case, he was going in my, my car, rented car. And the a colonel who was a Thai colonel who was escorting this or going to be on this bus in charge. And they were going to take him to a, a refugee camp in the middle of Bangkok, and I've heard that it was the conditions were pretty swinish. And I said, no, 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 I have permission. I have permission to take him to my hotel, and we're going to do this in the U.S. Embassy, and blah, 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 blah. And I was tr- sort of doing what Pran used to do, talking very fast and sounding like I knew what I was talking about. And the guy agreed. And we got into the car and drove to Bangkok. And on the way, we decided to have a meal at some restaurant on the side of the road. And we went into there, and, uh, and Pran had to use the men's room. And he went in, and mm. he was in front of a urinal. And he looked at me, and he said, I feel like a monkey. What did he mean by that? You have it in the book. What do you well, mean? he meant he felt like a, a jungle animal. That he, he had not used anything, anything civilized in four and a half years. Certainly nothing like a toilet. He had asked you, according to the book, for you to take him into the bathroom. Yes. He wasn't, he wasn't comfortable in the setting. He hadn't been in a restaurant or anything. He just felt what, what he really has been, had been doing for four and a half years was looking over his shoulder. Did they hear what I said? Because he pretended to be a taxi driver with not very articulate or not very perfect even Khmer, you know, and so forth. So he They was would just, kill him if, if, if they he thought had, he was an intellectual. If he thought, they thought he had an education or any, any relationship, any connection with foreigners, they would have killed him. And so he pretended a lot of the time. He was an actor and he got away with it. And uh, so – and then we got, you know – uh, finally, we got on a plane, and uh, he was very sick. He was well. He got sick toward the end of the trip. He had malaria, and and that first night he had a, an attack, and uh, uh, and and then I went to the hospital, spent the night with him, and uh, it was a terrific hospital. And and doctors had done with knew about Asian diseases and so forth, and they got medicine and. Uh, he had a rare strain they had to send to Tokyo to get the proper medicine, and uh, and he healed, and he got his teeth fixed, and a lot of them were broken or cracked in front, and and then he came back as a hero in New York, and he had taken pictures, you know, he had, he knew how to take pictures, but he was an amateur in very many ways, and and he they they put him out for training with a professional photographer, and then they was brought the New York, the New York Times, did. Yeah. that's right, and uh, a guy who was freelance. And paid for that, and then brought him into the be on the staff. 
Mm. Sam, what do you make of this in terms of your work with groups who are trying to put a stop to some of what we've seen here? I mean, you know, you've done extensive not-for-profit work. How important is all of this to what you're trying to do? Well, I, I think working on the killing fields got me started, basically, in whatever tiny little bit of public service or whatever you call it that I do do. And a kind of consistency has emerged. In every case, it was because somebody came and asked me. I take no credit for thinking up these things. But I think the refugee stuff that I've done, work with Oceana, oceans issues, and and the work I've been doing recently for the Fair Elections Now Act, they have a common denominator, I think. And I think it's more democracy. And journalism really in itself is a profession that attempts for there to be more democracy because it tries to bring uh, the voices of the unheard people to the attention of people in power, which is basically the function of democracy, if you think of it from the point of view of those in power. It is the best way to get information in a timely fashion from the people that would otherwise not be represented. You know, Sam, I'm a little concerned about one thing. We all know about the Holocaust. So many refugees came to this country. The Holocaust lives and should in terms of people's understanding about man's inhumanity. But the Cambodian thing to this day really doesn't register the way it ought to. And I wondered if you have any thoughts on that. You know, um, Pol Pot dies as an old man (laughs) in the jungle. This terrible, uh, Sid describes him as a Hitler. What is it about us as a nation? Sid said, quote, uh, at least a million and a half people uh, were killed or died during that time. Do we have a greater responsibility? Well, on refugees now are many millions of people problem worldwide, and we don't know... Uh, we certainly don't know their names, and and uh, some in some cases we don't even know where they are, what region, what country. If you include displaced people, we don't even we don't know where they are. It's not that we couldn't know; it's that we that we don't know. And I think that the, that the at least from my point of view, the common denominator is that we need to know these things. That for not just in an altruistic sense, but in in the name of our own security, we need to know these things because the overlooked refugee, the overlooked displaced person is the new recruit for things that will come back to bite us. The person that is displaced by climate is a canary in the mine telling us what the consequences of our ignoring all the other warning signs about climate change and the damage that it's doing. These, all of these things tie in together and they feed each other. And so I, I, I don't think it's just Cambodia that we ignore. And I think that we ignore these things not because we're hard-hearted, but because we don't think we need to know. But we do need to know for our own sake. And I agree completely with that's really so well put. I think the last time that Americans were fully or nearly fully engaged in what was happening uh, overseas in a war, and that was World War II. I think that was the last time because uh, eventually the national military draft 
uh, stopped. It expired. And all of America, all levels of America didn't participate in the later wars. And in other words, all the young, most of the young men who were uh, recruited came out of poverty looking for a way to step up, climb up the ladder out of that poverty. And so patricians and privileged people and middle class and so forth, they weren't, they weren't the, the, the core of the military. And I don't think we have any I, – I think our connection with the military is much less now. I mean, I'm talking well, about the, the population. Thing, Sid, that I think you have to say again and again is that the, your story did a thing that most war stories do not do, which is it put the light, the people that were between the lines of fire. And very ordinarily, the light is on the people who are shooting at each other. And we have very often been in the line of fire ourselves, and it's natural for our sympathies to go to our own soldiers isn't very proper. But the rare thing is for the story of the people who are being fought over and through and by and without regard to, uh, to be told in a vivid way. And I think that that's and the Cambodian you... story that's being told in, in your book and in the movie, but it's also the story of, victims of the everywhere. untold people, uh, numbers of people that are everywhere. run over by wars. Beyond the Killing Fields, Sidney Schamberg, War Writings, that and a lot more. Our guests have been Sidney Schamberg and Sam Waterston. Schamberg, a Pulitzer Prize winner, a great journalist, and frankly, a great teacher of journalism to so many young people. Beyond the Killing Fields, War Writings, published by Potomac. Sam Waterston continues to appear on Law & Order. I see him three or four times a night, and I love him. Thank you both for being here, you wonderful men. This interview was recorded in the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York. It is produced by our very wonderful Ian Pickus. I'm Alan Chartok. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call one 800 323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. 